You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Just a couple of months ago, the New York Times ran an article on what's happening to women in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the crisis that uh, we're facing, the economic issues, the pandemic issues. I want you to listen to the article. The title of the article is this, America's mothers are in crisis. Is anyone listening to them? And then they begin to give you all of the titles of the articles that are appearing um, in the same vein. Uh, Working moms are not okay. Pandemic triples anxiety and depression symptoms in new mothers. Working moms are reaching the breaking point. Now, I'm going to share with you what the article stated. You can see the problem in numbers. Almost one million mothers have left the workforce. With minority and single mothers among the hardest hit in 2020, almost one in four children experienced food insecurity. That's in America. One in four experienced food insecurity. Philip Fisher, professor of psychology who runs a national survey on the impact of the pandemic on families with young children, notes that the stressors on mothers are magnified by other issues, including poverty, race, having a special needs child, being a single parent. Fisher told the Times, people are having hard time making ends meet. That's making parents stressed out, and that's causing kids to be stressed out. And we know from all the science that level of stress has a lasting impact on brain development, uh, including, um, including things like learning and physical health. Almost 70% of mothers say that they worry and stress has damaged their health. Now, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to go to Esther chapter 7. We're back in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 7, you're going to see a stressed out woman. Now, for just a moment, let me tell you what the New York Times did. They wrote that article. They said there's a need, and this is the typical New York Times way of, um, of handling a desperate situation. They got a hotline, and they sent word out. They published this number so that women could call. You call the number up when you're under stress and pressure and full of anxiety, and you scream. There you go. There you go. That's their answer. I'm going to tell you that the seventh chapter of Esther, God has a different solution to your anxiety. He has a different solution to the whole desperation that you feel in your life. Some of you may be going through a moment of desperation, especially women. As we come to the book of Esther, of course, in every book in God's Word, uh, the central figure is going to always be the Lord, going to be Jesus Christ. In the book of Esther, God's never mentioned. However, you're going to walk away from Esther with the sense God is all over this thing. But when it comes to the human part of this, we're, we're looking at a woman and how a woman is handling a desperate situation uh, and she is in charge and has the ability to help a whole race of people out of a deadly situation. 
So if you've got your Bibles open to Esther chapter 7, I can't go back and catch every, I'd love to have an hour and 15 minutes, 30 minutes to catch everybody up, and then 45 minutes, and y'all are all sitting there saying, Lord, please save us from this moment of desperation. Um, I can't do that. So you're just going to have to uh, kind of follow along as best you can. Let me catch you up. Here is, at the seventh chapter, here is a second banquet that Esther is uh, throwing. And she's throwing the banquet for her husband and his chief advisor, his vizier, his conciliary. Uh, she is throwing the banquet, the second banquet, for these two men. And the reason she's doing this is she's looking for a way to share with her husband that she is a Jew he, she's never told him that, and that all the Jews are about to be put to death because of what his vizier, his counselor, has uh, decided to do. He's hatched a plan. He didn't really explain it all to Xerxes, and uh, Xerxes now has just agreed to go along with part of it. I'm going to give you all of this in just a moment, but now she's come to the moment where she's going to share. It's a moment Time's running out, and it's a moment of desperation. And what do you do for deliverance in a moment of desperation? You lean on godly wisdom. Even though God's not mentioned here, prayer's not mentioned here, none of the things that we would think would be mentioned are mentioned here. Through chapter 7, I read it, and as I've read it, I come away. God's wisdom is being spread throughout this entire chapter to bring deliverance to his people. So you've got three main people that are here in this chapter. Queen Esther, who dominates really the whole of the book. Then you've got Xerxes. And then you've got a guy named Haman, who is an Agagite that you must remember are the ancient enemies of the Hebrews. Okay? So how do I get through this moment of desperation? How can I experience deliverance? deliverance in the midst of my desperation, I can experience deliverance in desperation by leaning on godly wisdom. Number one, look at the godly wisdom of timing. Let's begin in verse one of chapter seven. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. They would eat first and then they would drink afterwards, which is very customary throughout Europe, by the way. And the king said to Esther on the second day, uh, also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Now, I, I want to tell you that most of the commentators will focus on her response that begins in verse 3. They look at, in fact, I've gone through a number of commentaries that take every individual Hebrew word and they try to find what's going on with this word and why is this word used. But I'm going to tell you what I think is more important here. What I think is going on is timing, not what she said, but when she said it. And let me give you a, a little indication of why. Because through the entire book, you go to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and into chapter 4, time is just moving rapidly. In fact, you come to between chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got three years when uh, Xerxes takes the army of Persia, the Medo-Persian army, and goes off to fight Greece, loses the war, and comes back home pretty much broke. 
So that happens between chapter 1 and chapter 2. You've got tremendous amount of time, and it's just clicking off rapidly. Well, when you come to the end of chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, all of a sudden now it just slows down dramatically to where you begin to look at just a 24-hour period. So the emphasis here, I think, is not so much on what she says, though I'm going to look at that in just a moment. It is when she says it. She has had now the third opportunity to tell her husband what is on her heart, what the issue is, that she and all of the Jews are about to be wiped out because of Haman. But in the midst of that, let me show you now two things that I think are critical. In the middle of this whole timing thing, why does she slow down? Why is she hesitant? Why has she waited now until this third time to be asked by her husband? Number one, men, I'm going to talk to you for just a little bit. Does your wife feel the freedom to express to you her problems? She obviously did not. She appeared before her husband in his throne room and she was standing there in fear and trembling because the law of the Medes and Persians said, you did not come into the throne room unless you were sent for. The only exception would be if the king held out his scepter to you. So she slips in to his throne room uninvited under the penalty of death unless he just graciously extends to her his scepter. He does. She invites him to a banquet where she's going to tell. He asks her at that point, what is your petition? What do you want? If you look back to chapter 5, verse 3, he asks her there, what's your petition? What do you want? Tell me what you need. She says, I want you to come to a banquet. And when you come to the banquet, I'll tell you there. Well, he, she prepares the banquet. He and Haman come to that banquet. And uh, he says to her again, tell me what is your request? Let me know what your request is up to half the kingdom. And she starts, you think, and we looked at this, you think she's about to tell him what her request is, what the issue is, and there is this dramatic pause. And I shared with you that I went back and I looked at this literally in the, in the Hebrew text. There is there in the Hebrew text itself this pause, uh, this uh, this. This uh, linguistic mark that is there to give you the indication of a long pause. She's thinking, am I going to tell him now? Will I let him know what's on my heart? Can I share with him my problem? And then just as she starts to, she changes and she says, nope. Um, if you come back tomorrow, I'm going to throw another banquet for you and for Haman. And if you come back then, I'll tell you then. So there is this constant delaying, delaying, delaying. The timing isn't right. I get a sense that God is moving in the midst of this, even in the midst of her being somewhat timid to tell her husband what the issue is. She is timid about telling him. And uh, the question just comes to my mind, why? Now, man, I have to ask you, does your wife, is she hesitant to come and say to you what is on her mind? When she's got a problem, when she's got an issue, is it something that she thinks long and hard about before she brings it up to you? Now, listen, on, on the men's side, 
Uh, let, me, let me just say this. Um, how many of you men have your wives come to you and said, I've got something to tell you, but no, no not, the time's not right, right, not right now. Yes, you. It's a moment, come to the altar. Um, I hate that. I hate that. I just want to say, just tell me, tell me, tell me what it is. Well, that may be the problem is the way I'm saying, just tell me, you can tell me anything. If you went to Xerxes and said, hey, can Esther come and tell you anything? Well, yes, I've asked the woman three times and she hadn't told me yet. That could be the problem right here. We're seeing it. It could be the way we're responding. It could be that they're timid because we throw it back at them. Well, why hadn't you told me this before? It could be that they come and share with us and they, I just don't want you to blow up. I don't want you to get upset. You're going to see that with Esther here in just a moment when she does tell him. It could be a lot of reasons. You need to ask yourself the question, is your wife free to express to you whatever is on her heart? Is she free to express a problem? Number two, is she free to express a person? Because that's what she's going to do here in what she says to him. She's going to talk about his chief vizier, his chief counselor, his chief advisor, Haman. She's going to talk to him about the man he hangs around the most, what happens when your wife comes to you and says, I want to talk to you about your best friend because I'm not comfortable with him. I don't like the way you behave when you're with him. Your fishing buddy, your hunting buddy, your golfing buddy, your buddy at work, your buddy at working on cars, when she comes to you, does she have a freedom to say, I don't have a good feeling about this friendship you're building with this guy. He's not good for you spiritually. He doesn't build up your life. He's not an encouragement to you. In fact, I don't like the way you behave when you're with him. I don't like the way the two of you talk. I don't like the things you say when you're with this guy. Does your wife have a freedom to express her problems? Does she have a right and a freedom to express an issue about who you're hanging around? Why are y'all so quiet? Now watch it, what she does. Now's the time. I think this is God's timing in the midst of this. And I think Queen Esther is sensitive to the thing that this is what God is doing, is that God has made it uh, uh, this an opportune time for her to talk to her husband, to Xerxes. And so in verse 3, then Queen Esther replied. Now I want you just to listen. Because all that I've just said, you pick up in what she's saying. Now, she comes and she replies, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition. He's saying, well, wait a minute now. This gets pretty serious. She's talking about her life here because her life was at stake. The life of every Jew was at stake. And now here is Xerxes, and he said, well, wait a minute. How serious can this be? This is pretty serious. She says, let, this, let, this, uh, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. Now's the first time she has exposed to him the fact that she's a Jew. Well, why hadn't she told him before now? Maybe she didn't feel like she could. You know, I thought at least I'd have at least a woman, amen. 
Maybe she never felt like she had the freedom to tell him that she was a Jew. And so she says, now uh, we have, now watch this, been sold. Now this is important to the next point, so I want you to get this, but I want you to see what has happened. I want you to take your Bibles and go back to chapter 3 for just a moment. Because Haman now comes to uh, King Ahasuerus, to Xerxes. And he's got a plan, and his plan involves um, literally selling people. Now, if you've got your Bibles to chapter 3, I want you to watch this. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providences of your kingdom. Now, he's saying there are these people. Never tells them that he's referring to the Jews. Never mentions that he's talking about Jews. Verse 9, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Now, do you see the word destroyed right there? I'm going to tell you something about that. In chapter 3, verse 9, destroyed. Now, look back at chapter 7, verse 4. As Esther says, for we have been sold, I and my people are to be destroyed. It's the same word. But it's an unusual word in Hebrew that has... It depends on how you nuance the word as to how you take the word. For example, let me, let me give you an example here before I go into explaining the word. I killed a fly yesterday. Did you watch the World Series? Did you see, did you see how many flies the Astros sent out to center field? Do you understand the difference in the two words? Same word. Did you get, but you understand the context. It's the nuance in which I, I, I say it. It's, it's the context in which I say it. Here is a word in Hebrew, destroyed, that when the nuance is a certain way, you can take it as being sold or slavery or causing a people to wander or causing a people to go off somewhere. At the same time, if you nuance it a different way, it's a word that means to be destroyed by wiping out, by killing, by destroying them. We understand what it means. Well, right here, I am convinced that Haman comes with a nuance to manipulate and to use the king, and he tells him, here they are going to be sold. Because, now you say, well, why do you know? Because watch, look at the text. The text will tell you. He says, after, if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Let them be sold. Let them, let them go off. Let them be put away. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasury. Now, here's uh, Xerxes. He's broke. He's wanting to raise another army to go back into Greece. Greece has defeated his father. Greece has defeated him. Now he needs money to raise another army. And he says, I'm going to give you 10,000. I'm going to sell me these people. And I can put money into your coffers. So Esther comes now and she nuances the word in the way that Haman intended it and not the way he used it. For we have been sold and I and my people to be destroyed. 
Let me show you one other thing because you're going to say, well, wait a minute. He knew this back in chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. On the 13th day of the 20th month, a copy of the edict was to be issued as law to every province. Listen, the king never saw it other than to put his seal on it. He never knew what this guy was really up to. Now, just hang on to that. Listen to what Esther is saying in chapter 7. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. Now, I want you to hear what she's saying. Are y'all okay? Are you following? You're tracking with? I want you to hear what she's saying to him now. She's saying, hey, uh, husband of mine, if they just were going to sell me into slavery, <laughs> I wouldn't have bothered you with it because we, know, we don't want to irritate you. We, how, why would we bother you with being selling all of these people into slavery? We wouldn't do that. That's what she said. Look, look at the text. Men and women, I would have remained silent for the trouble would not have been commensurate with all the aggravation of having to tell you. There you go. There you go. There you go. Husband, they're not going to just sell me into slavery and all my people. They're going to kill us. They told you that they were going to be sold, but they're going to kill us, and that includes me because I'm a Jew. We wouldn't have bothered you if we'd just been sold into slavery. Oh, you're not worthy to be disturbed with that. Uh, but since they're going to kill us, what have we got to lose? So she comes. And she says to him, I would have remained silent because I can't talk to you. But I'm going to die. And King Ahasuerus, verse 5, asked Queen Esther. Now, this in the Hebrew is staccato-like. It's like a machine gun going off. One bullet after another. Who is he? Where is he? Who would presume to do this? She's going to answer him in the same kind of way. A foe, an enemy is the wicked Haman. It's Haman. This woman now has come to tell her husband about her problem and about a person who happens to be his best friend. When you're faced in a moment of desperation, deliverance comes in leaning on godly timing. She waits till the moment is right. And she tells him. You got that? Now watch this. The second one, in a desperate moment, in a time of desperation, deliverance comes with godly self-recognition. In the midst of the crisis that I go through, I often see things about myself that I wouldn't see at any other time. And let me tell you something, recognition, self-recognition becomes the grace of God. The grace of God is when his word shows you for who you are. That's what happens to Ahasuerus. That's what happens to Xerxes. Look at verse 7. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and he went into the palace garden. Well, now listen, if this is, he's the king Anything he decrees is the law of the Medes and the Persians. He can do anything he wants. He flies into an anger. So why does he walk out of the room into the garden to cool down? Why does he walk out to cool down? 
Why doesn't he stand there in his anger and just decree, this isn't going to happen? Why does he go out? Because he's come immediately to recognize, I'm the problem in this. I'm the one that sold these people. I'm the one who did not pay attention to what Haman was saying. I'm the one who just kind of let all this stuff slide. I'm the one who got sloppy in my administration. I'm the one who all I could hear was about the dollar marks, and I let this thing get the best of me, and I'm the guy. She's talking about me. I'm the guy. It's not Haman. I'm the guy who sold them into the hands of Haman, and now I understand Haman was going to take him out and kill him. Boy, it's tough when the Word of God convicts you to the point to where I begin to see myself for what I am. It's not their anger. You know, how many times, listen, the flesh is always right, right? Well, I'm, I'm always right, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm always right, right? Well, that's what the flesh thinks. Well, it's not me getting mad. It's not me angry. It's everybody else that's angry. Oh, it's not, it's not me that's indifferent. It's everybody else that's in. It's not me that's cold. And then I suddenly, I come to realize, hey, it's not them that's angry. It's really my own uncontrollable anger that's the problem. It's not everybody else that's cold and indifferent. It's really me in my self-centeredness. When I come to the Word of God and the Word of God reveals to me, have you ever done that? Has that ever happened to you before? I've done it reading Scripture. I've done it reading in personal devotional time. I've done it listening to a sermon, being in the middle of a sermon and listening uh, to someone preach the Word of God. I've done it listening to a song, driving down the road, listening to Christian radio. And in the middle of a song, it says something, and I'm convicted I'm just convicted. I stop and I think, oh, no, I see myself as I really am. I'm really moody. I'm really touchy. I'm really irritable. It's not everybody else. The problem is me. That's where Xerxes is. I'm the guy. Well, you've got to do one or two things. You've got to either deal with it or you've got to get it out your mind so fast um, you don't have to deal with it. One or two things. But when I'm in a moment of desperation, the way I get to deliverance is through the self-recognition that the conviction of God brings on my life. Now, let me show you the last thing quickly and wrap this up. Here it is. The third thing is this. In the midst of that desperation, I need to accept God's salvation. How is God going to save them out of this situation? What's God going to do here? We'll pick it up at um, verse 8 and just listen to what is said. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the palace where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, in, in the book of Esther, I, I've mentioned this a number of times. I'd love to just list all of these, but there are constant reversals taking place. Constant. The Holy Spirit, in uh, authoring this, uh, inspired the writer to constantly show these reversals. Why are we even in chapter 7 in a desperate situation? Because Mordecai, a Jew, would not fall down before Haman... The Gentile, the Agagite. That's why you're here. So what happens in chapter 7? Haman, the Agagite, falls down in front of a Jew. Do you see the reversal? 
Here he is. What he longed for was for the Jew to bow to him, and now he's bowing to the Jew. He's bowing to Queen Esther, pleading for his life. Xerxes comes in, and he sees him fall. By the way, I read this week in something. I I wished I'd written down where I read this, uh, but I read this in some of the history I was reading that in order to be in the presence of the queen of the king of Persia, you had to stand seven feet away, seven steps. Do you know what they were doing? Social distancing in the day of Esther. (laughs) You could not get close to the king or to the queen. And here he is falling down. And what he's doing is he's falling there. And uh, Xerxes thinks he's assaulting his wife. And he says, how big a nut have I been to trust this guy? I really have trust somebody that should not be trusted. And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's faith. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs, who were before the king said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet, which Haman made for Mordecai, who, by the way, spoke good on behalf of the king. Don't you just, you have, you need to read this and think about what you're reading. It is fascinating. This guy throws in here this word, who, by the way, everything Mordecai has said about you, king, has been good. He says, why don't you hang him on that thing that he built for Mordecai? And the king said, hang him on it. Delivered. When Jesus Christ delivers you, he doesn't get you 90% of the way. It's all the way there. All the way delivered. Do you deserve the deliverance? Not a bit in the world. But let me tell you something. He delivers you totally and completely. Now let me show you something at the end of this very quickly. Because in the seventh chapter, you've got almost a perfect picture of what's going to happen in the New Testament in salvation. When you begin to look at this seventh chapter, who does Xerxes remind you of but yourself? That's me. That's me. I think I'm always right. I'm never wrong. I've never, you know. And then all of a sudden, who's Queen Esther but the Holy Spirit and the Word of God who confronts my life and I see myself in the light of the Word of God? Well, then who is Haman? Haman represents two different things. Haman, number one, represents flesh. In fact, listen to Paul, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we could no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Haman is the flesh. And what we're being told there in Esther 7 is this, put the flesh on the tree and nail him to it. Kill the flesh. When the flesh gets on the tree and it's nailed to the tree, listen, you are free. But do you know what else Haman represents right here? Is the one who was covered in our sin and went to the tree. 
As they saw Haman hanging there, they knew of all of his sin, all of his deception, all of his evil, all of his wickedness. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he, God, made him, Jesus, be sin on our account so that he would make us to become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So you've got a picture of salvation here. Now the question is, what do you do with that? Like Haman, are you going to say, put the flesh on the cross? I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's um, The Great Divorce. I was talking to somebody in the last week about it. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. C.S. Lewis is always fascinating. But in the story, The Great Divorce, he's really fascinating. He's got a story in that section uh, of that book about a young man who's got a red lizard that sits on his shoulder. Y'all heard this? Got a red lizard that sits on his shoulder, and the little red lizard just mocks him, taunts him, uh, throws sinful ideas into his head. The man hates, the young man hates the red lizard. Hates him. Can't get, him, can't get rid of him, doesn't know what to do with him, hates him, that thing sits there and leads him into all kind of stuff, just puts into his head all kind of sin to be involved with, and he hates it once he does it. But he doesn't know what to do with this red lizard. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to him. And the angel looks at him and says, I can take care of that little red lizard. And the guy just rejoices. He's so excited. He is so thankful. He says, yes, I can be rid of this red lizard. All of his mocking, all of his taunting, all of that, it can be gone. And the angel begins to glow. And as the angel begins to radiate light, the young man realizes what he's going to do is incinerate the red lizard. He's going to kill the red lizard. And as the angel gets ready to kill the red lizard, the young man begins to think, well, I don't know if this is what I want. I don't know, should we do this? Now, the red lizard knows what the angel is going to do, and he sees the man hesitate, and he begins to speak to the man. Maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. Can't we do this another time? The angel says, in this moment or all moments, either you want the red lizard to live or you do not. The lizard, recognizing the hesitation of the young man, begins to mock and plead at the same time. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not natural for us. I know there are no real pleasures. They're only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? I'll be so good. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Now, that's where we are. Those of us in the church, that's where we are. It's like that young man, like Xerxes, 
We want to be delivered from the results of sin. God, can you do that? Can you deliver me from the results of sin? But don't quite deliver me from the sin right yet. Doesn't work that way. Let's stand and pray about it. Now, where are you in all of that? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? What's the Holy Spirit showing you about your life today? What sin is there that you despise and yet love at the same time? That you hate and yet embrace at the same time. Only godly wisdom will bring you to the place where you can say with Paul, I die daily. Put the flesh to death. Stop living in a way that gives Satan victory in your life. For some of you here this morning, that means coming and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To finally make that decision. The issue is not, do you know about Christ? The issue is not, have you heard stories about Christ? The issue is not even, do you believe in Christ? Because the New Testament tells us that the demons believe. The issue is, will you come and submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Be Lord of my life today and for all of eternity. I'm going to be standing here at the front. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I invite you, come to Jesus. Come to the Jesus. Come to God who loves you, who died for you, who lives for you, who waits to save you. Others of you here this morning, you've been visiting this church for so long, you've gotten comfortable in the seat, but you know that you need to make that decision to make this your church home. You need to come to say, we're going to follow Christ, and in following Christ, we're going to be a part of a local body of believers. Others of you, God, listen, God may be calling you to deal with an issue like he is Xerxes, to deal with the issue of the flesh in your life. You know Jesus Christ, and yet the flesh has control of some area in your life. And then there's some young people here that I continue to ask, is God calling you to ministry? Is God calling you to missions? Is there a call on your life to serve him for the rest of your life with all of your life? Father, in these moments as we pray, gain victory over our thoughts. Gain victory over our stubbornness. Gain victory over our sin. Gain victory, Father, over our hesitancy. And may the decisions we make today be honoring in your sight. Just with your heads bowed 
right now, would you come? Would you slip out? Make that decision that you need to make. You come this month. As you come, others will come. Saw it in the first service. One older gentleman stepped out and came to make a decision. And then another older gentleman came and made a decision right behind him. So as you come, God uses you. You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.